Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of charts at Billboard. The Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be chatting with Billboard's Gary Trust and Trevor Anderson of the Chartbeat Podcast, talking about Michael Jackson's Bad Album and how the set scored a then-record five number ones on the Hot 100 back in 1987 and 1988, and where that achievement ranks among the all-time historic Billboard chart records and where the album ranks for both Gary and Trevor personally within MJ's catalog. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode, and give us a rating or review while you're at it. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So before we get into the bad talk, did you know that bad actually generated a total of seven hit singles on the Hot 100 chart. So in addition to its five number ones, uh, which happened to be also its first five singles, it also spun off a number 11 hit in Another Part of Me and a number seven single in Smooth Criminal. In total, over Michael's entire career, uh, he has tallied 50 hits on the Hot 100 chart, with 29 of those hitting the top 10, most recently with... uh, Love Never Felt So Good with Justin Timberlake back in 2014. And a total of 13 of Michael's singles have reached number one. So let's go back to 1987 and talk all things bad on Coming Around Again. Hello, 
and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast, celebrating anniversaries in the music world. Uh, today we have a, a crossover episode. Uh, got Gary Trust and Trevor Anderson from the Billboard Chartbeat podcast. What's up, guys? It's the all-star podcast. Indeed. Yeah. It's, it's like that Futurama Simpsons crossover or something like oh, that. Those are weird. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the animated crossover so much. Okay, well, it's not the Futurama <laughs> Simpsons crossover, apparently. <laughs> but in any event, have you guys ever been on another Billboard pod before? I've been on the the uh, the Pop Shop podcast with Keith. Okay, right, yeah, uh, yeah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, Keith and Katie, yeah. sure. We're all family. We're all friends, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I wanted to have you guys on today because it is the 30th anniversary of Michael Jackson's Bad Album. Uh, it's a big one for Billboard, especially because uh, and, and a personal favorite of mine because it hel- it holds the record for the most uh, number one singles on the Hot 100 of any album ever. At least it did for. About two decades, and so before it was tied, but uh, still does. Just still does. Yeah, yeah. But, but shares the record. No longer, no longer the sole proprietor there. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is one of my favorite Billboard chart records. I think uh, partly because it's, it's not one that a lot of people would expect this particular album to have. I think most people would say, "Oh yeah, it's probably Michael Jackson album that has it," but they would guess, you know, Thriller or maybe Off the Wall more so than Bad. I also find a lot of the songs pretty interesting. I think it's just an interesting time in, in chart history in general. Is it, where, does, where does this rank for you guys in the kind of pantheon of great, weird Billboard chart records? Uh, ooh, Gary. Gary threw it to me. Um, it is... I mean, it's, it is a good it is a good record because obviously people pay attention to sort of the all star records in terms of mm-hmm. songs. You know, at songs with most number one. We saw that obviously this year get tied as well. Artists with the most number ones, but um, you know, it's when you have to like sort of pin it to to one specific album. And, and you know, there's also a lot of talk where a lot of people, you know, nowadays or even back then could could do two no, two two number one out. Al- sorry, two songs hit number one from an album and mm-hmm. you kind of just shove it and go on to the next album and you sort of can can sort of pad your total in that sense but to have you know a full body of work that has to produce five number one albums that's that's pretty special and obviously the album does well itself so it's kind of a twofer on that and you kind of get uh, different generations because it seemed like it was never going to be matched and then Katy mm-hmm. Perry did it. so you sort of have uh, the 80s fans the traditionalists versus maybe younger fans who uh, live through Katy Perry doing it. So you kind of have this fun uh, cross-section of, of different uh, uh, generations with these two uh, albums. Yeah, whenever, whenever these records can last for entire decades, multiple decades, and you know, we saw this recently, obviously, with, the, with Despacito tying One Sweet Day's uh, Hot 100 Stay record. Right. Uh, it's, it's a special thing because it means that the record was meaningful in the first place. And you know it, t- it took so long. It took you know almost thirty years of the Hot 100's existence for one album to spawn this many Hot 100 number ones, and then it took almost another quarter century for another album to match it. Right. And that's uh, you know th- th- that that does feel like history when it's happening, especially when you've seen so many other albums come close but not quite get there. Right? Yeah. And there's been other records recently that seem a little more uh, it's just the way the charts are now, like weeks in the top ten. We mm-hmm. just saw a closer tie the record and then shape of you. So that's two in the last year. So that's a little different as opposed to uh, something that did uh, something in the 80s and then just one other album in the 2010s. So this one, it does seem like it's it's one of the more hallowed records. Yeah, and it, it seems like uh, it requires a lot of uh, you know context being in place. You know, it's, it's the sort of record that's only even possible to happen in, in very specific like, pockets of chart history because other times there's, there's, there's just periods where singles are on top for 10, 12 weeks at a time, and you only get, you know, 10 to 15 number ones in a year, and it's impossible for five of them to come off the same album. So you need these, like, very specific periods of high concentrations of number one singles. And uh, I guess we were in one in the late 80s, and we were very briefly in one earlier this decade. But, uh, you know, who knows when it will happen again. Yeah, I think what's what's interesting, and one of the keys that Michael Jackson was able to do this, and then Katy Perry to tie it, 
is that the, the late 80s was such a time of pure pop. So you had mm-hmm. a lot of albums going four, five, six, even seven singles deep because uh, it was before it was before grunge. It was before hip-hop really uh, took hold. Country would be so big in the 90s. So uh, mid to late 80s were, was still a time of, of just pop ruling everything. You right. had consensus. So you could put out a hit. Everybody would know it because pop was really was everything. And then if you look at when Katy Perry did this in 2010, 2011, that was kind of a resurgence of pop at the time. You had Taylor Swift and, and Gaga. and Kesha. Yeah. You're going to give 2010, 11 Taylor the, the pop mantle? She quite, <laughs> well, she had, she had a couple pop crossovers, Love Story and uh, You Belong With Me at that point. Okay. All right. I, I do. I think of that as as like the the Gaga, Kesha, and even sort of the Black Eyed Peas era. Like that that was that was what kind of ushered in that that new wave of sort of mega pop, right. which is I guess also kind of what we had in the late eighties uh, right. with these blockbuster artists. So two kind of similar times when sure. pop was was at a high point, and that's when they both did it. And if you could kind of pinpoint one specific reason, like in one sentence, why Bad was the was was the specific album to to make this chart record, what would you say is the biggest reason? I think part of it was uh, other albums came very close. George, my, we were just saying this on on uh, the Sharpie podcast. A plug for the Sharpie podcast. <laughs> Shameless uh, yeah, this week. I like it that uh, George Michael uh, at the same time Faith had four number ones plus a number, number two. two hit. Yeah. So it, it feels not not to take anything away from from bad, but it feels like other albums came really close. And yeah, could Paul have. Abdul four Paul number Abdul, ones and a number yeah. three. Janet Jackson with uh, multi, you know, seven uh, top tens. So seven top fives, right? Seven top that. fives. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's one of the absolute insane ones, I think. But but yeah, for the story you you did uh, for Billboard.com too, Andrew. There, there was such plug. a there was. <laughs> I'm just plugging everything here. There, there was such a push on the label side sure. that Michael. Jackson wanted history, so I think they really weren't going to stop until they did everything they could to get this record. Yeah, some of the stories connected with the rollout of that album are pretty insane. You know, they had this this party at Michael Jackson's house in Encino where they basically brought out the entire record industry to come and hear the album and be wined and dined and kind of uh, cajoled into you know giving it the best promo foot forward. Uh, and there was uh, like a half hour of CBS TV special that debuted the night before the album came out. Uh, which, which back then was a very big deal, you know. You, you, I guess they, there was plenty of uh, of MTV type specials like that, but to, to get something like that on primetime was pretty rare. Uh, and we, we sort of touched on this already, but it, it seems like one of, if not the biggest factors in this, was that there were just so many number ones to go around that year. It's almost like the the, the steroid era for the charts. You know, I think we we saw that there were 33 in 1988 alone that that spent at least one week on top, and, and none more than four weeks. So it made sense that it was possible for Michael Jackson to kind of uh, you know notch this this stratospheric amount of number ones just because uh, the, it was wide open. There would be you know the Terrence Trent Arby would be on for one week and then he would fall off, and then uh, you know Rick Astley would be on for one week and then he would fall off, and it was just this constant kind of carousel of, of number one hits. Yeah, it was a, I think as you reported, it was uh, it was a time when labels cared about just getting to number one. It didn't really matter mm-hmm. how long they were number one. So one week was fine. They'd let someone else uh, would do the same thing. All right. And and the other seems like the biggest factor that we haven't talked about yet was that it happened to be following up the biggest selling album of all time. Uh, you know, Thriller came out about a half decade earlier, uh, sold. I mean, the, the numbers are inexact, I think, at the time, but certainly sold tens of millions of copies by the time Bad came out. Uh, had seven top ten hits, had a couple number ones. Uh, it only had two number ones, which is probably surprising considering how many of those songs, you know, still classics today, still here on radio at weddings, etc. But uh, you know, it, it set the stage I don't know, as high as any other album ever has for the, the chart success of the follow-up. Uh, and like, this is actually kind of one of my favorite recurring phenomenons just in Billboard 
chart history is when you know the the song that everybody knows by the artist uh, doesn't go to number one, but then the next album's first single does. Uh, do you guys have any favorite examples of that, or albums that kind of build off the momentum of, of, of previous albums? Yeah, I, th- I thought of one. I, I think that's an interesting phenomenon too. I, th- I think one of the one of the quotes again from that story was someone said that a Thriller did the heavy lifting, sure. they did the work for, for Bad. Um, more recent example, or at least this decade, uh, Mumford and Sons. Oh, so right. I know sure. more. It was a huge album, but the singles you know, they, they did well. But it was almost that the first single from the next album probably was going to be bigger, just because the the profile had been raised at that point. And I will wait is their biggest hit. But people might think a little Lion Man is sure. maybe one of their yeah. more known songs that didn't even hit the top forty. Uh, I will wait hit number twelve. So yeah, you see that sometimes. And that that whole album too, like you know, it, it, I, I don't know how many Mumford and Sons like stands out there. I don't know if there are still that many Mumford and Sons stands out there, but it, I, I bet you most of them would probably point to Sign More as being the better album and, and maybe even the more popular album. But right. it, did, it did last longer in the right. charts, but number two versus number one peak. But ba- yeah, and Babel had the amazing first week sales and all the Grammy wins and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, I was thinking of uh, a couple couple actually artists from, from more from your era, Gary, but... Uh, <laughs> my, my era. Not, 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 my year too no, in, in retrospect. But, podcast uh, goes you know, black not, and not white around for, for it. Duran Duran, uh, Hungry Like the Wolf is probably their most famous song. Uh, only number three hit on the Hot 100, but uh, The Reflex, first single off of uh, Seven of the Ragged right. Tiger, the album after that. Right. And that was the first number one. Right. Uh, and Depeche Mode, uh, Songs of Faith and Devotion, I think was their only only number one album on the Billboard 200, even though I think, I, actually, it's one of my favorite Depeche Mode albums, but most fans would probably consider it a you know, second tier album of theirs. And certainly compared to Violator, the album that came before that, not necessarily. Uh, and didn't have the same legs in terms of the singles and in terms of the the, the radio support, but uh, you know goes goes down in history as their highest charting Billboard 200 album. Yeah, yeah, you saw that back. I'll, I'll give a really a deep example here for, deep, for freestyle fans listening from the late '80s. Uh, Stevie B. Okay, Tell sure, me you've yeah. heard of him. Oh, yeah, uh, he had a couple uh, songs that peaked in the '30s in 1989. I want to be the one. In my uh, eyes was that. In my sure. eyes, and those are kind of considered as classics. But then after that, he had uh, the big ballad, uh, the Postman song, sure, because I love you. It's a four-week number one hit. But I think a lot of people maybe you know don't consider that part of his great uh, freestyle catalog. Mm-hmm. Flashing forward to to the teenage dream era for a minute. Uh, I don't know how entrenched you guys were in the, in the Hot 100, uh, you know, the, the, the trenches there when, when the album was, was really popping. I was working for, not, not for Billboard, but for a different pop blog. And, you know, I was following the, you know, every week the single's progress. So it's got three, it's got four. Now Last Friday Night is climbing and it's, maybe it's going to get to number one. I mean, were you guys rooting for it to happen or were you, were you trying to preserve the sanctity of the MJ record? How, how were you guys reacting to that at the time? I, I was working here and I was uh, okay. writing the Hot 100 weekly story then. So we were, you know, if nothing else, I, you know, we root for an interesting story. Because sure. it just sort of makes it fun for everybody. So when you get that close and you know, other albums have gotten four but not five, it it really was fun to watch that happen. Um, and, and Capitol Records was really pushing for it. They were really aware of it. So they knew uh, what uh, what they could match if they did that. So it was, it was a big deal to them too. So do you, have, do you have specific memories of like the kind of things that Capitol would do that, that made it seem like this was really something that was on their minds? Well, they, they uh, put Kanye in the remix sure. uh, for the single version of E.T., 
Mm-hmm. So that added a little bit more reach to it by bringing in maybe some uh, you know fans that weren't necessarily Katy Perry fans, mixing genres a little bit. Uh, my real memory of that is uh, one of the executives at Capitol took the same uh, Metro North train as me. <laughs> so I'd see him in the morning. I remember one day where it wasn't certain if one of the songs was going to go to number one. And I, I feel like he kept just pushing me closer to the platform until he got the answer <laughs> that he wanted. Maybe I made that up. But I, I, I always felt like there was, it was getting a little too close to the edge there. Uh, and what, what about you, Trevor? Well, as, well, as someone who did not work here, um, I mean, yeah, I, I was paying attention. I mean, and that was that's a good pop album. So I think I think sure. in the in the initial part, you know, when uh, California Girls was number one, everyone kind of saw that coming. You know, lead single after the big breakthrough album, no surprise there. Teenage Dream, fantastic song. No one was upset with that. Firework, good enough song. There's also this kind of weird <laughs> dissing Firework. I, I, actually, I guess that was a diss, but it's it's not as good as Teenage Dream, but it is still a. a a very good pop song. I think it may have lasted better than Teenage yeah, it, Dream. It, it, it surprised will, me. Well, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, I mean, well, it definitely, but it lends itself to bigger occasions. I mean, it's it's more you know an anthem than. I mean, you're gonna hear Teenage Dream at the club, and you're not gonna hear it obviously <laughs> on the Fourth of July or New Year's Eve, or you know, there's something much bigger about it. So I think it has lasted with that advantage. Et, um, you know, was fine, was great too. I mean, Kanye West, uh, I thought really, I, th- I actually like the version with Kanye. I, I like the Kanye verse a little bit. Yeah, it's it's, it's not bad. Look like it's, it's it's one of his better features, probably on a pop song. And it, it's like one of the and, last times that he would do like a feature like that. Like I'm sure if Katy Perry offered him a feature now or whoever the 2017 equivalent right. is, he probably wouldn't do it. It's it does it's not, you know, he, going for that kind of pop crossover is no longer one of Kanye's top priorities. No. It would seem. And I remember thinking at the time that that might be the one to miss because mm-hmm. she had been so pure pop. And that, that was really the, her first song that was pretty different it, with kind of trap elements. So when that went to number one, I was thinking, OK, she she may have this mm-hmm. because now everything's working for her. Well, and then I remember, of course, there was the fifth song, Last Friday Night. And I mean, I, I guess as a chart watcher kind of fan, you, you felt like it definitely did have the more – the, the the more push behind it. I mean, they oh, yeah. made the video, this giant event, this eight-minute video. They wanted everybody to be involved with it. And then, of course, the Missy Elliott remix. I'm glad you mentioned the Missy remix. I thought we were going to be remiss not to talk about that a little bit. Of course not. You know, that was one of those things where, because the song was, it was in like number two, number three at the time. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, you kind of at that point just give, you know, give in and say, okay, this is going to happen. But then when that, when that remix came out, just to, you know, kind of help put it over the top, that's the first time. Because I think, I think it happened earlier that year with the same thing with Rihanna, with Britney Spears. Right, the SM, you know, sure. and had yeah. that same, that same situation. So, I think given those kind of back to back, it made you think, okay, you know, are people like are people that sort of desperate for, <laughs> desperate for a number one that a number two is not going to be good enough for these superstar acts? Had the remix with Missy Elliott not come out, and who, I mean, who knows if the song would got to number one without it? Uh, I, as a chart watcher, I would have felt a little more okay with that, mm-hmm. but I just feel like you know, I know, and I know you can obviously it's, it's on labels labels half it's 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 a game, it's a strategy as well. So all's fair, but I felt like uh, you know Michael didn't have to. Yeah, it felt like a, like a tiny bit of an asterisk, right? Like uh, yeah, just 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 the slightest bit. I mean, I'm not. I would like to be excluded from this narrative. Well, you're not about the chart asterisk in general, Gary. But that, that's why you have me here to talk about these things. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely was. A, it was it was an enlightening moment for me as a kind of a, a still an outsider of the Billboard universe at the time, both showing the kind of machinations that the labels would go to to, to get songs to number one. And just the fact that they cared that much, like I, you know, I, I obviously cared, but as a as a nerdy sort of pot watcher, kind of like, like some of the, the way you care about like tracking stats obsessively in sports. But like the fact that the labels 
uh, were able to kind of put these wheels in motion so that they, they ensured that this would be a thing that would happen. Uh, it just shows really the power of the Billboard charts and shows the power of the Hot 100 and of this record specifically because clearly this was a thing that the Capitol cared about, that Katy Perry cared about. Uh, being in league with Michael Jackson, even, even if it isn't his number one album, is, is still a, a pretty pretty powerful thing. And it's amazing, too, I think, how much for the fans really oh, yeah. get into this. I mean, we see we saw it this week with, with Despacito, One Sweet Day. I mean, you know, when people equate records, they... You know, they believe that equates, you know, talent or prestige sure. or influence or whatnot. And I mean, I'm sure Katy Perry would be the first person to say, you know, she's not Michael Jackson. She's not trying to compete with Michael Jackson. But it is kind of cool that the fans like think that those records for those particular people are so important that they don't want anybody to touch them. They don't want anybody <laughs> to come close to them, you know, as a way to, to solidify, you know, in a quantitative way, like just how great these great ones are. Yeah, no. And, then, and they're they're willing to put it out there to, 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 to make some threats and to say, to say some things that don't necessarily make us uh, the, you know, the most comfortable as the gatekeepers of these stats, but uh, you know you appreciate the passion at all times. Yeah, I'm not sure in 2011 twi- Twitter or, or social media <laughs> were quite what it is it now. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah you would have some comments would have, been, would have been flying for you, Gary. We, yeah. had the com- we had the comments section under these stories, but it, it'll not in real time, not the Facebook yeah, 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 it is now. A little different. Yeah, uh, I was definitely not rooting for the Katy Perry album. I, I was not a Katy Perry fan, especially at the time. Uh, but I do have to kind of... I respect the fact that like all five singles were big singles and all five singles were very different from each other. And that was one of the things that I liked about the, 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 the batch of bad singles as well, is that like even though... You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of them in a minute, but like even though not all of them were necessarily like among Michael's all-time classics, none of them really overlapped with each other. They all had very... Dis- and very distinct identities and even from his other singles uh, the singles before that singles came after but certainly from one another they're all, they're all five very different songs they have five very different videos five very different feels and I think that makes it kind of more more of an accomplishment when you hit number one five times to, to be doing it you know taking chances each time and not just kind of repeating yourself over and over again uh, so I definitely have respect for Katy Perry for sort of doing the same thing there uh, so yeah, now let's, let's talk about the songs a little bit. Uh, so just just running them off real quick. Uh, first one was "I Just Can't Stop Loving You," uh, the lead single off the album. Had no music video, but did have a duet uh, appearance by Sieta Garrett. Saida, Saida Garrett, I think it is. I yeah, Saida. Saida yeah. Garrett. Sorry about that. And uh, you know she was, you know, I think she was supposed to be a little bit more of a of a star. Like they were supposed to get a Whitney Houston or Barbara Streisand type. To, to appear on the song, but uh, instead they got Saida, who was uh, one of the stable songwriters that Quincy Jones had. Uh, I mean, isn't that kind of? I mean, isn't that amazing to think that you know, in 1987, that given the opportunity to record Michael Jackson, that Barbara and and I think Aretha was also thrown in there at some point, and Whitney would all. I mean, I know they were all probably doing their own albums, their own rollouts, but it feels like. I mean that that's almost like a guaranteed hit. Like right. and to not take that, that's just that's well, Whitney incredible. Whitney had so many of her own that year that maybe she just didn't. Maybe her, you know, that that was still the time that labels were worried about overexposing their artists at least a little bit, right? Like, uh, I don't, I don't know if she and maybe just she would have cre- created traffic for her own hits on the top of the charts. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that would have been a reason to kind of keep her off that song. I, I feel like the song now is is a little forgotten oh, in yeah. terms of uh, his hits. So maybe if it had been, say, a Whitney. Uh, Michael Jackson it might might stand up a little bit better now. I think when you even listen to it, it can be kind of hard to like keep their voices distinct from one another. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. obviously, Michael doesn't have the most you know gruff, masculine voices to begin with, and when when they're kind of you know, twisting around each other in the upper registers, it's like, oh, is there even another voice in the song, or is this just Michael kind of double tracking himself? Right, and I mean, the way they they also like switch off parts, like like yeah. whoever ends who ends the chorus, and I mean, so the first time you hear it, you think it's Aida, the second time you might think 
That's how you did. Wait, no, that's Michael, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great song. It really, it's probably, very un- solid probably song, underappreciated. Yeah. I think it's it's really well written and, and orchestral and a very uh, pretty adult kind of a song. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, you don't hear it much now on radio. It just feels. It feels I heard like, it, though, the, the, the time that was the day that he died. That was the first time I heard this song on the oh, radio, really? though. But it, sound, it sounded great coming, yeah. like, off a radio station. It really did. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, inadvertently helped launch the career of Sheryl Crow as well. Cause she, you know, she was uh, she was touring. Uh, they, they make a big point of this in the Bad Twenty Five documentary, but she was uh, touring in, 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 instead of Saida Garrett because uh, I think she was trying to launch her own solo career that never quite got off the ground. Uh, and Sheryl Crow was the backup singer that ended up taking her place on on the song duetting with Michael and uh, kind of doing a, like a little romantic tango with him. And you know, flash forward to five years later, she was uh, certainly a much bigger star than Saida Garrett ever became. But maybe there's ouch. something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I guess true, yeah. but ouch. I was gonna say maybe there's something to be said for the song became a hit on its own merits a little bit more. A if it bit. had just been uh, uh, Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston or someone bigger, might have just been the star power. So yeah, maybe pay attention to the song a little bit more. But I think it's also probably safe to say that if this song was the fifth or sixth single off the album, it probably would not have gone to number one. No, not not safe to say. I don't know. It seems like this this was definitely a momentum number one. It was a, hey, Michael's back. Uh, he doesn't need a music video. He doesn't need a big co-star. Uh, this is it's the first we've heard of him since Thriller, aside from you know some scraps here and there. Uh, that's got to be taken pretty heavily into account, I think, when talking about the song getting to number one. Yeah, I, I, right. I, I think placement certainly certainly helped. And I, I, I we'll talk about Men in the Mirror in a minute, but I feel like that's probably a stronger song. That would be a number one no sure. matter when it was released. So I think there's a difference between the two ballads, singles. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and it should also be stated that the, there was some logic to making this the first one because, you know, they were basically saying, uh, well, what are we doing Thriller? A Thriller, we had The Girl Is Mine. That was also kind of a slow, traditional ballad. That uh, was a duet, again, with a much bigger star than, than Saida Garrett and Paul McCartney, uh, but also no music video and, and kind of just maybe just like a you know, test the waters a little bit sort of song. Uh, and that's what they did with this one. It worked out pretty well. So uh, that, that was... Number one, number one. Uh, number one, number two uh, was the album's title track, Bad. Uh, first song on the album, first music video, and it was the, the video that premiered on the CBS special that they had before the album came out. So it, it was probably the first taste of the album that a lot of people got. Uh, and it was very much, you know, a, a, sta- you know, a statement of intent. Uh, it was bad. What, what do you remember thinking of that song at the time when it came out, Gary? Um, I, the things on my mind now is uh, it was actually a little bit before I was so into music. It was okay. it took a, it took like another year or so before I got <laughs> obsessed. And never took stopped. to the fifth number one. Yeah. Um, so you were like thirteen at the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It took about the spring of '88. So when you're that age, a few months makes a big difference. But oh, yeah. um, I was just reading a, a difference. You guys uh, did a whole story of, of people going song by song on Billboard.com. A, a, another story. Another plug. There we go. Uh, another plug. Three for three. Uh, so Prince was invited to be on this song, but he didn't want to be on it. Yeah, there's, there's a number of differing stories about this. Uh, one story is that Prince, you know, all, all of them have Prince being invited to be on the song uh, and him and obviously not ending up doing it. Uh, some people say that uh, the objection was that I didn't want to get out outshined by Michael. Some people say that he just did, you know, just didn't think the song needed him. And I think the the most popular one, I think the one that the that Trevor even wrote a trivia question about in our office trivia competition. He, uh, well, this is what Prince told Chris Rock when uh, yeah. he had an interview. According to Prince, he says that uh, the opening line, "Your butt is mine," uh, was uh, a little contentious as to you know was Michael going to be saying it to Prince? Was Prince going to be saying it to Michael? And really, either way, it was no good. 
Uh, so which do you choose to believe, Trevor? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's I, I would like to think the third one is true because it's, it's, it's perfectly a great anecdote and it's very petty. But it's also <laughs> something that I think... Proto-petty almost. Oh, for sure. And I think it's all... But I think it's one of the things you have to, you know, given the context, especially of what... I mean, Michael and Prince, you know, obviously very... The Michael Prince war had already been kind of mm-hmm. going on at the time. Thriller, Purple Rain, all that kind of thing. But, I mean, to have an opening line like that, perhaps in 1987, when there are rumors, you know, I mean, Prince is not the most masculine fellow in his appearance or, or his mannerisms. Michael obviously has, you know, plenty of question marks around him <laughs> as well. I think, I mean, maybe from even like a PR standpoint, Prince, you know, was, was in a way being cautious, being smart. Or was it that Prince really was in awe of Michael Jackson because he he had been in the business so much longer? It seemed like uh, Prince actually didn't want to be upstage. Yeah, I mean that's that's that's, that's Quincy's theory about yeah. it. Certainly, I, 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 t- I yeah, talked Quincy's to him. Quincy's theory. My, my, my buddy Q, who I you know I spent a couple of minutes with the other night, uh, he says. Uh, you know, we invited him in, and uh, you know, we 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 you know we sat across the table from him and uh, we talked to him for a little bit. But he he said, well, you know, you don't need me on the song. But uh, his own theory is that you know he just he just he was a little bit, he was a little bit gun shy about competing with Michael and that like he had actually had a studio session with Prince uh, you know several years earlier and Prince was a deer in headlights and that he, he you know he, the, the the lights were too bright coming from Michael uh, but and, and yeah Michael had been a, a star for twenty years already at that point almost and Prince was still relatively new although you know Prince had been around for almost a decade by that point too so still maybe a different stratosphere and you can kind of you can kind of see it in the fact that. You know, in, you know, Prince, I guess, came out in 1999, and around the time that Michael came out with Thriller, same year. Prince... No. Oh, oh, like, not the year 1999, the album 1999. The album 1999, in 1982, same year as Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh, and then he releases, I guess, five other albums in the space that it takes Michael to make bad. Probably, right? Or, or at least four, I guess. There's Purple Rain... Uh, around the world in a day, the the you know, parade, the the oh the under the, the under cherry moon soundtrack, soundtrack yeah. uh, and sign of the times, which I think comes out earlier in 1987, right. and it's a double album, so you want to count that as five, and that's that's it's either four or five, but yet Michael is still the bigger star, having done nothing in this time basically, right. uh, and that's pretty crazy to think about, uh, and it might it might have you know added to the the enmity there a little bit, or it might have just seemed made made Michael seem so much larger than life that that maybe yeah maybe Prince doesn't want to go ten rounds with him. I think either way makes sense. Well, there's all there's that's a weird dynamic between the two of them. I mean that carries on for, for forever. I mean yeah. I know uh, Will I Am was on the Graham Norton show a couple of years ago, and he said that he and Michael Jackson because uh, you know Will I Am also did a lot of work with Michael before he sure. before he died and did um, some some of the projects on the 25th anniversary of Thriller album, and he said that he and Michael went to a Prince show. I'm not sure when this was. You know, probably in the 2000s later, and they went to a Prince show, and I guess Prince noticed Michael was there, and so Will said that Prince like went down to play the guitar like right in Michael's <laughs> face, like just the whole time, like mm-hmm. you know, just making a show of it and whatever. And then Michael apparently went home and was you know wondering why is Prince being such a meanie, and so I guess they, I think he said that Prince has like never liked him or something. So there's there's it's that relationship in, in itself is always kind of interesting. It's definitely really interesting, especially because you know the, what you would, that story you just told kind of illustrates it. Prince was both Michael and Quincy in one person, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michael was the the interpreter, and, and he was the right. You know, he became the writer. Uh, you know, in the in the bad years, he, he wrote most of the songs, but uh, certainly he wasn't the kind of auteur that Prince was. He didn't play all the instruments himself. He didn't produce the records himself. He was the instrument more so than than the creator in a lot of ways. Whereas Prince was both of those things and so much more. 
but yet Michael was still the bigger star and, and probably always had been and always would be to, to a certain extent. Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely a really interesting dynamic between the two of those. Uh, the version without Prince, uh, still like a, a pretty, pretty storming song, like pretty like exciting song, bad. Uh, it's got some questionable lyrics, I would say, uh, maybe some questionable intentions, but, uh, what, what do you guys think of the song? I don't, I don't put it up there with his classics. I just, I, I, I feel, I feel like the next two songs we'll talk about are the two standouts uh, of the single. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like it, it's just kind of uh, a little, little, I hate to use the word gimmicky, but a little bit of sort of about uh, just the title of the album. It just kind of feels like it hasn't uh, aged maybe as well as it could have. But I do like the energy of the song. I think, I sure. think it's a. I don't think he put out anything in his catalog that had quite the same energy. I guess "Beat It" is probably the the easiest comparison to mm-hmm. say, but I just feel like if you listen to that song, like, um, even like just driving your car with the windows down, like I know that's kind of the quintessential example. But there's something like there's something fun about that song, like that. And even if you don't think Michael Jackson is bad, that almost adds to like that almost adds to the enjoyment of it. Is like I'm just singing this like this this fake song that <laughs> that you know I don't really believe it. Like I don't I'm not really intimidated by it, but it's just like. It's just fun for all the good kids out there to think that they're bad for a minute, too. Yeah, the, I mean, the lyrics are definitely a little bit weird uh, in, in trying to promote Michael Jackson's badness. Uh, that line about, like, then won't you slap my face? Like, I'm, I'm still not quite sure what, what that means. But, but yeah, like, like you said, there's definitely something fun about the song. I remember I was listening to it uh, this morning, actually, on the way to work. And, like, just, just that bass groove, like, you walk into it, that, that, that's a thing for sure. You know what I actually think of when I think of this song is Weird Al Yankovic's uh, parody. No, I, I watched that video. I'm, I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, uh, Fat. So it, Fat, number 99 yeah. hit, uh, two weeks, uh, oh, really? which is just sort of funny in itself. It just barely hit the chart. But, uh, you know, Eat It was from Thriller. Sure. So uh, I was looking at Weird Al's Hot 100 history. Uh, Michael Jackson is the only artist he had two parody hits with on the Hot 100. That's interesting. So we'll, we'll tie a, another tie-in between Thriller and Bad. And I'd also, I guess, uh, Weird Al trying to replicate the Thriller formula by, by going with Fat and right. you know, of, of, of Bad instead and, and another food-themed hit, no less. Right. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, I watched that video for the first time like since I was you know twelve, whatever, since my Weird Al days uh, this morning, and it's actually pretty clever. Like like they get they get a lot of like kind of little things right. Right. Uh, and by the way, if you want to look at the Wikipedia entry for Weird Al's Fat, you you can see a list of literally every similarity between Fat and Bad. Yeah. I don't know who took the time to do this. I don't know what what service they thought they were providing, but it, it is stunning. There are Michael Jackson's. I guess Michael Jackson stands, and I guess Weird Al stands out there too. Uh, and the video is great too, and and the bad video uh, is is, is, another, is another like really really interesting part of this album to me. I mean, it was uh, maybe not the most ambitious video he'd done yet because he'd already done Thriller, which is another you know double digit minute long mini movie with a big director and a script and all that. But he'd never tried to do anything quite this serious before. This is basically like him doing like his feature film acting debut. But then it also turns into this ridiculous musical at the end of it. What, what do you guys think of the video? Yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot, a lot going, going on. on in it. There's a lot going on. Uh, yeah, Martin Scorsese directing. Uh, Richard Price was this like uh, you know I think pop boiler novelist wrote the script, and uh, and Wesley Snipes, the great Wesley Snipes, uh, making his uh, basically his film debut in the video. Uh, there's, there's a lot to chew on there, certainly. Yeah, it should almost feel like they they hitched their wagon to this song. Maybe this was going to be the big statement. I just mm-hmm. think 30 years later, it's not the song. It's you know the title cut, but I, I don't think it's the song you really think of when you think of the singles from this album. So there was so much push behind it. It was a number one hit, but I, I just keep coming back to it. It gets a little bit forgotten among even the hits from that album. But I, I do. I, I'm sorry, go back to the video. I do have to say I love the 
like the transformation literally of michael jackson from you know <laughs> yale prep school kid to this like you know greaser with this yeah i mean this, i guess this is really the he'd already obviously been a fan of military jackets and, and those things we've seen around but this is sort of the first like leather and chain kind of yeah. kind of era that we see him in and and when they everyone drops from the ceiling and like they like yeah, squat up they, at the been back there the entire time in the hoitskimore and uh, subway station yeah, it's, it's it's pretty absurd. it's just i mean it's, it's just an amazing clip with with just the emphasis on the trumpets and everything it's just such a big like yeah. like Real? Is this really happening? Like, <laughs> I'm like Michael Jackson's about to jump me. Is this really how it's gonna go down? Yeah, it's, it's like I don't know. You're watching an episode of The Wire, and then all of a sudden it turns into West Side Story. It's it, it's it's so absurd the juxtaposition between the two halves of the video. But they're both fun in their own ways. It's it's, it's very it's a very strange thing. But I think I think uh, Kanye actually called that Michael Jackson look like his his favorite Michael Jackson look with the like the, the head to toe leather and the zippers and all that. Uh, so it's certainly it's endured for some people, but maybe the the, the fashion of it better than the actual song. Uh, so the third single, uh, "The Way You Make Me Feel," is probably the least least controversial single off this album. I would say the, the least uh, the the least contentious, and certainly the one that everyone has generally positive feelings for. I mean, I guess maybe maybe the next one we'll talk about too, but. The way you make me feel, it's, it's hard to imagine how somebody could kind of not like that song. Yeah, well, the first single, it's got all the attention of being the first single. Bad, it's got the video, it's got the title cut. It feels like this one is now we're just judging the songs for what they sure. are. And yeah, it's got that shuffle beat. It sounds different than maybe any other single he's, he's done. It's a great melody. I think this one of the three we've talked about so far really stands up the best. Yeah, I, I think definitely it's one of the few Michael Jackson songs in this catalog that is really like, you know, Michael trying to get the girl. Like yeah. they're like very, I mean, he's obviously been an adult for a while now, but kind of moving into that frontier um, for the, for one of the very first times. It's, it's not a you know Jackson Five kind of bubblegum crush song, and there are, there are you know more ballads and romantic kind of tributes on on Off the Wall and Thriller. This is kind of the first like I guess you could say if you want to think of Michael Jackson as bad, like this is his first sort of <laughs> playboy like somewhat anthem. Still sure. still soft, you know, not not disrespectful, but. Uh, but in terms of lyric lyric development, uh, I think a big step for him too. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Someone I talked to for one of the, the bad articles we did mentioned that, well, first for for I just can't stop loving you that he'd never really done a song with a female co lead before. Uh, he's he's done songs with with, with, with other collaborators, but uh, they didn't really have that on Thriller. And then Thriller also didn't really have like you're saying didn't have that song of, of him kind of playing the the lover man. And, and I guess Pyt sort of did, but Pyt didn't have a video. And so you got to see kind of Michael play the romantic lead basically for the first time uh, in the video for The Way You Make Me Feel. But I mean, like, he's literally, like, you know, the phrase, you, you really turn me on. Like, yeah. that is a, you know, that's not going to be on a PYT kind of thing. But it's set to such this happy music. It all, it's kind of that, uh, you don't realize maybe yeah, the lyrics are that sure adult. That's... It sounds just like a bouncy, happy little pop song. Yeah. And, and the video is like, like, takes place in like a very dark alley. And apparently, you, you know, the original concept for it had involved uh, street gangs in some capacity. And, they, and the director actually hired actual street gangs to, to play it. So. Michael is a fan of the street gangs. I mean, you look at Beat It, and now you look at the bad video. Like, yeah. this, he's, a, he's a gang dude. Uh, but yeah, the, if this isn't the most beloved song on this album, it's probably the next one we're going to talk about, which is Man in the Mirror. Uh, it was a you know a mega ballad, uh, one of the few songs in the album not written by Michael, written by uh, Saida, who was the, the co-star on "I Just Can't Stop Loving You," and Glenn Ballard, who did, did he go on to, to have success with Alanis Morissette? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. He, he co-wrote the uh, "Jagged Little Pill" hits. Yeah, and I was I, trying to wonder if I was making that up. Well, I always try to make sure I mention Wilson Phillips before that too. He did the first Wilson Phillips really? album, the entire album. He did. I, he did. Uh, I know he. Uh, I want to say co-wrote or and or produced "Hold On" some wow. of those hits, but he was behind that. That's so, legitimate. Yeah. 
Uh, so, and are, are you guys with the consensus on Man in the Mirror? You know, it's funny. I've been kind of brainwashed not to be my my father. Really? My father was not a fan of this song mm. in particular. Like you would always kind of skip it on the collections. He always thought it was too like you know sappy or too like wussy or whatever. So I hadn't heard the song until probably I was like fourteen, fifteen. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's I, I think it's a beautiful song. Um, I mean, obviously, Michael is 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 very much after the thriller era and all the mega success he has moving in, moving towards a more humanitarian perspective. Uh, that's why I think one of the most interesting things on the bad, the song bad is like that little bridge when he like sort of goes from being bad and he's like, you know, we can change the world tomorrow. Yeah, no, this can be a better place. Yeah. And I'm like, this is like, this is the most <laughs> random thing to throw in to this song. But I guess it really, you know, underlines how, how success or how, how much he cares about that. Obviously, Corinne, we are the world a few years earlier with Lionel Richie. So this is really on the forefront of his mind. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting because even though it's, I think, one of Michael's most personal songs, I mean, the fact that it's not written by him is, yeah. I think, something that people would not would not really equate because he obviously wrote so many of his own hits that, you know, this song would be particularly interesting. Yeah, I feel like this song got a whole new, I was going to say a whole new life after he died, but it <laughs> kind, of, kind of did. And everyone suddenly just started focusing on the music. And it mm-hmm. seemed like everyone really started appreciating this one all over again. And now a whole new generation has kind of grown up with this song. And so, I mean, so many of the tribute articles or videos would always be like, Man in the Mirror, yeah. Michael Jackson, the Man in the Mirror. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you sort of alluded to this, Trevor, but. The song does have kind of like a lightness to it, like that opening synth riff. It's very airy and like, I don't know if cheesy is the word for it, but it's certainly dated pretty quickly, I think, that that, that specific riff and and some of the other kind of like softer elements to the song. So like, I remember when I, when I was growing up in the late 90s and, and into the new century when like edginess was still more of an important thing, I think, in, in, in music criticism and, and kind of the, the general dialogue, like the song sounded very much of its time. See, I disagree. I really, I really do because I base a lot of it on what still gets played on adult radio. And oh, but but adult radio, there you go. But I, I, mean, I feel like if you hear bad now, you hear some of those. Uh, well, but, but, that's, but you, that, that's what I'm getting to is that yeah. uh, after a certain point, when I think like that sort of '90s kind of edginess uh, stopped being a priority, and certainly by the time of his death in 2009, right? Okay, it became less important, and it never was that important to begin with, really. Uh, but you know, certainly, if if Michael was going for more of a hard edge sound on some of the bad singles, this this was not in line with that. But it's a great song, and it's, it's an incredibly powerful song, and it's a, just a brilliantly structured song. And you know what the best part is, right? We're talking about the key change. The chorus. Talk about the key change. No, well, the chorus too. Certainly, it's a great chorus. But the key no, I said change, I said of course. Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the key change certainly, I would say top 10 all-time key change probably did just a little pause before it and just just hitting you with that change that's kind of an 80s thing wasn't it oh, yeah. thing an mm-hmm. 80s production it sounds like like to, to that point it does sound like like a lot of those like sort of charity songs and i guess everyone kind of had one <laughs> i guess everyone kind of had one social song it really reminds me a lot of mariah carey's there's got to be a way that has that same sort i mean there's the there's, there's the same choir at the end there's the same kind of like just kind of like yeah general lightness mm-hmm. like kind of kind of mentality about it the kind I mean, of production that like doesn't outlaw it from getting played on any radio station that like it'll, it'll be yeah, that there's no station that it'll be too hard for. right i mean it kind of hits that soft spot between ac pop i mean r&b can't can't avoid it sure at the time yeah yeah but where i thought you were going to go with that was uh talking about whitney's the greatest love of all which i think most people would consider kind of the, the progenitor for man in the mirror in the certain and I, th- I think you even talk about that in the bad 25 documentary is that he never had that that song that would clearly wouldn't you know created a lane for other than we are the world 
other than We Are the World. But just, just, just that, that that's, yes. Just that. You know, his name isn't on that song. You know, it's certainly his, he is a, a towering presence on it, but, you know, it's not his song. You can't put that song on a Michael Jackson album. But he had Man in the Mirror, and certainly that kind of form of a Michael Jackson ballad became something that you tried to go to over and over again afterwards, you know, on a Heal the World, or Will You Be There, or even You Are Not Alone. Right. Like, that, that, that became kind of one of the standard Michael Jackson song forms. And then we get into a little murkier territory with the fifth single, uh, Dirty Diana. Uh, it's, the, it's the rock song on this one. It's, it's even harder edge than Beat It, probably, but it also kind of follows the formula of getting whoever the hot rock guitarist was at that time. Who in this case is Steve Stevens, who was Billy Idol's uh, main guy, but I think he actually left like a month before the album came out. Uh, probably hasn't endured, at least the Steve Stevens part of it, hasn't endured the same way as Beat It. It's not that sort of iconic rock meets R&B pop sort of thing. Uh, I still think it's a great song. What do you, what do you guys think of Dirty Diana? Um, the, like, uh, I listened to it a couple times to try and gather my current thoughts <laughs> on it. I mean, it's 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 so hard not to compare it to Beat It, just given you know who the artist is and, sure. and sort of what he was trying to do, perhaps with it. Uh, I mean, it's not as good as Beat It. I'll give it that. Um, it's it's okay. I mean, it's it's. It, it feels a little forced. I mean, uh, just because. I mean, again, it, and this is sort of that same thing with, with, uh, with the way it made me feel. Like you know, Michael's okay. So Michael's bad. Got these. Got these women problems. Not in the same way as. as <laughs> not in the not in the same sort of um, clever clever way as a as a Billie Jean, which you know yeah. is based on a paternity lawsuit. Really, I think you would say that you know, even though this is more of a musically, you know, it's musically structured the same way as Beat It. Uh, the song that actually has the most in common with our thriller is probably Billie Jean, right? Like it's, it's, it's also like this kind of very dark and pulsing, uh, you know, sexual melodrama, basically. Like it, it's, it's got the same sort of scandalous, uh, recoiling feeling to it where it's uh, Michael Jackson kind of going like, you know, you know, taking his hands, hands away from the situation. Yeah. Like, yeah, this, this is, this isn't me. You know, these girls are saying these things about me, but it's not me. Yeah. Musically, I think it's more, uh, it's it's more like Beat It just because the, the Beat It was, was such an up tempo song. It was, it was such like a, like an in your face kind of aggressive song. But it's Michael going rock on, sure. each, on each album. Yeah, yeah. I, a lot of what Trevor said, I, I think it's uh, yeah. Again, maybe hasn't uh, quite lasted the same way uh, the way you make me feel or Man in the Mirror has. It's got a great hook. Uh, the chorus mm-hmm. is, is as catchy as anything you were going to hear at that point. I mean, all it is, is Dirty Diana. It's catchy oh. though. <laughs> but I guess if a look what look what you made me do is you know that that's, yeah. that's six times selling too and. and those two words, he, he made like one of the song's biggest talking points, which is also kind of a proto-Taylor thing to do. It's like, who is the song about? Is it about Diana Ross? Right. Is it about Princess Diana? Uh, turns out it's really not about anybody, or at least in a, nobody named Diana, just some sort of anonymous kind of composite groupie. But uh, it certainly, like I don't, I don't even know if Michael was doing that intentionally, but he, he was sort of ahead of his time in that way. But I'm going to make a statement about Dirty Diana that you guys may or may not agree with. I think like if, if you take pop music in 2017... This is the most influential of the five singles off off bad, because and like you've even seen like like artists cover it like uh, I think the Dream did a, did a version of it uh, the Weeknd definitely did a version of it on, on his second mixtape he just he just called it DD but it's basically a straight version of the song and the Weeknd especially I think like I don't think the Weeknd exists without the song it, this the same sort of like lurking kind of like like. Uh, like sorted melodramas as like played almost as horror movies like this this song is like very foreboding it's very creepy like. I don't think that you have a song like The Hills without Dirty Diana as precedent. I mean, does, it, does that make sense to you at all? 
I like uh, the the weekend Michael Jackson comparison. Just if if not mm-hmm. vocally, I, I think uh, he's you know maybe as close as we're going to get to someone who sounds uh, that way and and brings back uh, that that type of vocal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's hard for me to to look at Dirty Diana in the same on that same level that's been as influential as something like Man in the Mirror. Okay. Well, I don't know if you really. Hear, I mean, what would you say is like the closest version to a Man in the Mirror that you would hear in 2017? Like, what's an example of that song form kind of existing in the modern pop landscape? Like a pop, just a pop ballad at this point. Well, like 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 a, a mega pop ballad with a social conscience and and uh, you know a real sort of sense of grandeur to it. It's it's pretty rare, I would think. Yeah, I think we've seen this year that message songs <laughs> in the last year or so maybe aren't exactly working. Uh, yeah, we've seen uh, you know Katy Perry change the rhythm was probably a fell mm-hmm. short of uh, expectations and, and for the political tie-ins there. I don't know, hard to hard to say specifically. I, I hear Man in the Mirror. I, I listen more for music than lyrics, so to okay. me, it's just straight down the middle pop ballad that you know, we still get nowadays, and those are always going to become hits. Uh, so that, that's all five number ones, but it's 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 not even really close to the end of the discussion on the album. I mean, the, the most amazing thing about that, I think, is that. You know, despite having five number one singles, I think some of the most famous songs on the album aren't even in that discussion. I mean, uh, got you got Smooth Criminal, which is probably, I don't know, certainly one of the two or three best remembered songs of this album. Uh, Leave Me Alone, which has, I think, I, my personal favorite music video of this album with the, like him and the, like, as kind of like the animated amusement park version of himself. With the, Did he win a Grammy for that music video too? I, I think, think so, yeah. Like long form, perhaps. Yeah, yeah and, and it, was like a, it was a gigantic MTV hit. I think it was nominated for Video of the Year. Uh, even another part of me, I know, I know some some Michael Jackson fans think that that's one of the best songs on the album. I'm not personally one of them, but I think uh, it's good. I think it's got a good hook. And it was also a top twenty hit. So so what what, what, what what's your guys' favorite non number one single off this album, or just just not? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a single itself, but not one of those five songs. What's your favorite song on the album? Yeah, I'd probably go with uh, Smooth Criminal. Okay. I think and yeah, we saw it that remade by Alien Ant Farm became a number one alternative hit. Sure. Uh, in in the two thousands, uh, I just think it you know it's a little. A little weirder, a little experimental in some ways. So they put it out as the seventh single, and that got to number seven. Uh, shows that even if there's fatigue at that point, it still still stood up as a top ten. Yeah, and I think uh, kind of reverse of what we were saying about I Just Can't Stop Loving You. If this had been the second single off the album, maybe it goes to number one. Yeah, I think probably. It certainly has a better chance. Right, probably. And what about, what about you, Trevor? Uh, I, actually, I agree. I think Smooth Criminal is, is, is the best, I think. I mean, even though it kind of does borrow today, it sounds dated with that sort of uh, industrial kind of garage production sure. that – Probably Janet probably does better than anybody else. Um, I also like I also like like the kind of difference in, in Michael's vocals on this song. I think it's you know the sort of okay. short, choppy, breathy kind of vocals. I think are something that um, we hadn't heard we hadn't really heard too much of uh, on a particular record, and so I, I like the way that he kind of changed that up. And obviously, it's one of the, the songs that benefits from one of the iconic videos with you know the white suit and the lean the and the lean, way yeah. the way it's kind of sped up a little you know and maybe one point two five times. Um, and even the extended version is, is, is actually pretty cool. People haven't seen that. It's probably on YouTube. But um, for me, it's got to be that one. All right. And you know, just talking about the music video, like the, the really remarkable thing, one of the many really remarkable things of that is that I think all but like two tracks on it had music videos, which kind of shows just like what an important part of the culture MTV was back then. You know, and this wasn't even like a lemonade situation where they're all part of one like long continuous movie. Uh, but it's just nine. nine. I, I think there was there was like a mini movie like Moonwalker that, that I think three or four of the videos were com- were cut from. But aside from that, like the, it's 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 an insane, just just commitment to the to the music visual format, and and certainly MTV was always was, was perpetually hungry for Michael Jackson videos, so most if not all of them would get played. Uh, quick shout out to to Speed Demon, one of the few non singles, non videos, basically uh, non. You like that song? I love that song. It's a, it's a batshit song. Speed Demon. It's it's got 
one of the most insane kind of like rhythmic logics to it of any Michael Jackson song and, and there's parts to it that I, I forget are even part of the song listening to it this morning there were whole whole different sections of it that I never I never remembered being part I, of it I, don't think, yeah, I think I don't like it because of the, the lack of cohesion I think between like all, all the parts of the song well but this is kind of the interesting thing about Bad right like I don't think anyone would say this is a, as cohesive an album as Thriller and certainly not as, as Off the Wall which is probably his like strongest front to back album in terms of just like this is like one sound and one kind of specific groove that uh that I'm, gonna, that I'm just going to master for ten tracks. Bad is all over the place, even within the five singles. It's 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 pretty off the wall, but uh, but like it, it it's it's got there, there's a, there's like a sort of fascinating quality to that. And that like it, it, it's it's this guy striving for perfection and coming up with something like extremely imperfect, but the, the results are still staggering. I mean, how, how do you guys uh, how do you guys rank this album compared to those last two albums? Yeah, I don't think I know that it's the one with the record. It kind of uh, goes back to what we were saying. People might not expect this to be the one. I I don't think it it does stand up the same way as uh, Off the Wall and Thriller. Um, I think part of it is sort of a, an element of art or, or just human nature. Not not to have a pun, but uh, when he's doing Off the Wall, when he's doing Thriller, he kind of didn't know how big he was sure. going to become. And once you hit that point where you have that awareness. From that point, you're maybe trying to measure up to what you've done, and that kind of enters into the creative process a little bit and makes it a little less pure artistically in some ways. And you're thinking, is this as good uh, as Thriller? Is this as good as Beat It? And you're kind of uh, redoing certain songs. So I just feel like there's maybe uh, in some way a little more authenticity to Off the Wall and Thriller than what you got on Bad. And, and same thing with Dangerous. Yeah, well, I don't know about Dangerous. Dangerous actually – that's an entirely separate discussion. I feel, feel almost bad getting into it now. We're already, we're already running so long here. But you uh, got the chart beat, guys. We're going to yeah, go for an hour and a half once uh, we have this song. Dangerous, actually, I was listening to it this morning for the first time in a while. I was surprised by how cohesive it was. Like the, the, Because it was done, I guess, at the, at the peak or maybe a little bit past the peak of New Jack Swing, and they had Teddy Riley, who was the New Jack Swing guy, uh, kind of as, as the main uh, producer behind the album. Like, like The first six or seven songs of this, I was like, man, this is the best New Jack Swing album I've ever heard. Like I, I couldn't believe how much it all felt like it was coming from the same place. And I, I guess as the album goes on, you get into like the get into black or white, you get into those big like free willy power ballads, and you get into a couple other sort of detours, it becomes less so. But I actually think that Dangerous is, is, is closer to off the wall in terms of the, the general consistency of the album than, than the two albums that were in between that. But but generally I, I do agree with you. It, it does it does feel like Bad was more of a self conscious album. Uh, it, was, it was him trying to better himself, you know, trying trying to beat himself as opposed to just trying to be the best version of himself. He, he was he was very he was competing with himself in a much more right. explicit way. But he's competing with you know the biggest pop star in the world. So for sure. anyone else, an album like Bad would just be the biggest thing ever. He just happens to have these two other albums yeah. before it that yeah, you have to, you wind up comparing them. Yeah, to. It only went diamond and had five hot 100 number one singles. Right. It's, a, it's certainly the most successful flop album in history, if you want to call it that. What, what, what do you about, what about you, Trevor? Um, I probably. I don't know what I would put first or second, but I would probably put bad third. Okay. Um, I do agree with the same points. I mean, I think, and in hindsight, you know, I mean, Off the Wall came first, so it's sort of more the most influential, if you want to say, setting the ground for sure. Thriller, kind of establishing that new lane of sound. Thriller, to me, is not is really not the most cohesive album, but, and I think there are reports out there that, you know, they really just set out to make a, the concept album for Thriller, the concept being they're all hits, <laughs> um, which, you know, seven out of nine, which I think makes it the most successful concept album in history. If, if that's what they were going for, you know, nail on the head. I on that mean, one, move so. over, Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, I think I think with bad, uh, I mean, really a lot of points that Gary said. I mean, there, there's a 
there, there's 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 an attempt to be bigger and better i think on all fronts than than he did with um with thriller i mean a lot of the songs have whether it's repeating the same sort of genre or the same sort of um, message or melody or whatnot uh it just feels like you know not bad but you don't have to do you don't have to, have to do that much bigger to be better sure all right well as i said we've gone way over here so let, let's let's get down to the, the most important question of the day which is five number ones off the same album will it happen again and if so who has the best chance of doing it um i say i say no you say no it won't happen again i i do not think so and i think I think you can come close, but I think the, the one problem that you that you're going to run into in this environment is streaming allows people to access all the songs so 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 quickly that you know I mean to have five top tens perhaps, but I think you know I mean because you know the biggest thing about a product to have five number ones is that you it requires a year and a half of of work of strategy sure. of planning of of anticipation and i think i just can't think of many albums that last a year and a half i mean taylor's was obviously the last one she had five top tens three of those went to number one um but even she kind of benefited in a way by not having her things on spotify so people couldn't ex- access them in the mm-hmm. same way as easily as they wanted to um and you know maybe if they had been able to it would not have happened um but i think just for that particular reason the rush is so big and i mean to, to you know sort of keep that anticipation up for a year and a half or so i think is just too much yeah, what do you, what do you yeah i'm, I'm not gonna say it can't happen because uh all it, records were meant to be broken <laughs> i just i just think if, if taylor could have three number ones plus uh, there was no there's no video for style right or it, did, it was it, it came out later though right it came it, it came out I, I, uh, it came out the same day as drake's uh if you're reading this mixtape, so that kind of sucked the air out of that video, I guess. Yeah, but it was still it was it was before it was done. Okay, it was, uh, but it was a little bit later in its really. It didn't, it didn't come right out off the bat. I mean, it wasn't as, as well timed to save like space, right? So maybe if it had been, maybe if it had a, mm-hmm. a bigger video around it, say that could have gone to number one. Wildest Dreams was still a really good song. It got to number five, so it came close. I and mean, if something can get that close in the streaming era, I feel like it, it, the chance exists. Sure, it'll be absolutely difficult. Uh, it could be hurry. It could be, you know, who would have guessed that uh, the weeks in the top 10 record, the Chainsmokers, would have so many weeks in the top 10. So maybe it's even by an act that mm. we don't think of right now. Maybe someone will come along and there'll be that newness factor and people will just want the next song from them. So it could be a superstar or it could be something that's really out of left field. Who knows? I think one thing that complicates that, though, is is we see the, the, the question of the album being such a big, you know, mm. I mean, if it is five songs from an album, I mean, in a way, you could argue that, you know, Bieber could have played that right if he'd had the, the right five songs on his album. But yeah. so many of them are standalones that, I mean, you know, as soon as you put out one standalone or something, that jeopardizes your chances. Right. You, you, know, you might so much. see five right. number ones in a year before you see five number ones on the same album again. I would agree with that. Yeah, that, 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 that's an interesting thought. Uh, and I think I agree very much with both of with both you guys are saying. And I was thinking about it in terms of the Ed Sheeran album, which... I think in another year might have had two or three number one hits by now, uh, you know, not, which isn't to say that like he has necessarily the songs to do it with. But I think you saw with, with, with a number of things with the rollout of this album, they're very indicative of this era. You saw that he released the, the first two songs at the same time, which would never have happened in a bygone era. Uh, and Shape of You was the one that people latched onto, and it lasted forever. It lasted for 12 weeks at number one. It's still in the top 10 now, which is pretty crazy. And... The other songs, uh, you know, most fans already know about them because the, the the album's out there. You can listen to it as many times as you want. So there's not going to be that kind of new factor. Like you know, when 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 people heard uh, the way you make me feel on the radio, 
1988, early 1987. A lot of people probably never heard that song before. Right. And a lot of people that would even be potential Michael Jackson fans had never heard that song before. They just never hadn't gotten around to buying the album yet. These days, if you care about Ed Sheeran, you've probably listened to Divide by now. Uh, and so that does make it does make it very difficult to notch a third number one, a fourth number one, because the songs aren't new to anybody anymore. Radio doesn't have that same sort of int- introductory impact. But I would say uh, that I also agree with your kind of never say never attitude because we don't know what's going to change. You know, streaming is the dominant thing now, but we don't know what comes after streaming, and it could change the game completely again. I think this is sort of what we saw in the twenty three years in between Bad and Teenage Dream. I'm sure after SoundScan came out, there were probably all sorts of people saying, never going to happen again. And SoundScan, I should probably say, is the uh, technology that was introduced in the early 90s that kind of made uh, Billboard sales reporting you know, more, more distinctly accurate, right? right. Like, is, is that safe to say? Sure. Sure. Uh, and then after that happened, you started seeing uh, number ones that would only have been two or three number ones before that uh, are now 12, 14-week number ones. Uh, and you know, the, the number of number ones per year dropped precipitously into, from like 26 a year to 12 or 13 a year. And now we're, we're more in that 12 or 13 a year phase now. I'm not sure exactly how many we'll have this year. I think we had 11 last year, something like that. But the game will change again. Uh, and not to say that everything's necessarily cyclical, but everything is is not locked in. Things that we, we take as givens now will not be a given 10 years from now. So that while I say that in the immediate future, it seems pretty unlikely this is going to happen again. Right. And that's, years from now, who knows? And that's why it really was, it may be more unlikely for Katy Perry to make it, to tie this record in 2011. It was more of an outlier for its era than Bad was for its era. That's so probably it true, even but, but it did, it did uh, have the advantage of iTunes sales being a thing. It did have the advantage of these remix policies that, you know, we're, we're not super new to the time, but certainly didn't exist in the late 80s, uh, probably not until the 21st century, the idea of just kind of hopping on a remix and, and that being something to propel sales further. Happened a little bit in the 90s, but it certainly became more root in the, in the mid to late aughts, I would say. So, I mean, every every one of these albums that comes close has its own advantages to, to its era. Uh, so, it's, it's, you know, it seems like it'll never happen now, but who would have thought five years ago that uh, that the, the one-week sales record would be shattered the way it was? And, and so right. dramatically, too, right. uh, by, by Adele's 25. So, yeah, I think you do have to never say never with this sort of thing. We'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out in the next ten years. All right. Can I give one last stat that I, w- I forgot to share about Michael Jackson? By I want to. Sure. Yes. I want you know Michael Jackson, a pioneer on these charts. I didn't realize Off the Wall, first album by solo artist to have four top ten hits. Really? It was. That is shocking. Thriller, first album to have seven top ten hits. Bad, five number ones. He, got, he got better and better. Nice album. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous. Uh, a Very good. good a good record. Yeah. Good album. But I mean, all the, those three iconic albums, all all setting new records for him. And I think he wasn't he also the first artist to have a song debut at number one on the Hot 100. He was, yeah, yeah. So the, even in the mid '90s, he was still 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 setting new records, making new precedents, chasing that history. The king, the king, the king. If Trevor gives a stat, can I give a stat? Sure, Gary. Let's, let's hit his right, let's give us a give us a better stat. I know. I, while while the, Gary's coming up with this stat, you come up with another. stat. That's the problem. We'll, we'll have a stat off. I don't think it's yeah. better, but I think it's interesting okay. that uh, we were talking about another part of me before. It was uh, it got to number eleven on the Hot One Hundred, yeah. which is kind of weird after all these number ones. Or maybe it made sense because the label kind of didn't care. They got the record sure. at that point, but uh, it did become the fifth number one uh, from the album on the R and B Hip Hop Songs chart. 
And that became the second album to do that. Uh, Janet's Control had oh. done that, so okay. both had the record. So, what was the other? What was the one number one single that didn't go to uh, that went number one pop and not number one R and B? Dirty Diana got to number five. Probably could have guessed that, I guess. And then Smooth Criminal got to number two, so we almost got a sixth one. Mm-hmm. Five number ones and a number two—that's pretty good. Your stat may have been better, Trevor, but I want to be sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, with Michael Jackson, certainly we could go back and forth all day. Uh, plenty of stats to go around there. Uh, so, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. This is was a. Uh, this is one of the better crossover episodes, I would say. Not 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 in that kind of Family Guy Simpsons realm, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe Harlem Globetrotter Scooby Doo sort of thing. Like that, that that's a, that's a quality crossover. So we'll check you. the uh, the crossover charts. Get, okay, back, yeah. get back to you on that. And thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks a lot, man. If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.